We are going to start a new series today as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. We're going to look at, start at Acts chapter 3 today, and this series is called New Thing. And really what that title describes is the church, because what is happening in the book of Acts is this new thing called the church is just getting launched. It's just getting started. And the first couple of chapters are sort of really getting the motor going, getting things set in motion. And chapter three, really, or really chapter two, gets the really the, the kickstart, the boost when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And now it's really just going. But it's a new thing. And there's new leaders that emerge, as we will see in these coming weeks. Uh, there are new beliefs that are starting to solidify some sort of twist on existing beliefs, some brand new beliefs, but this is a new thing. And in the middle of what this new thing is doing is there are new and exciting things that are happening around the formation of the church. And we'll look at the first of those exciting things today as we begin Acts chapter 3. Today we're going to look at really the first recorded healing miracle in the book of Acts. Now it's the first, but it's certainly not the last. It's the first of many, many, many miraculous stories, many stories of incredible healing that we'll look at in different ways, from different points of view, with different emphases on them. But we're going to start with the first one today, and I will tell you, I will warn you, I'm going to do a little bit of rhyming today. I didn't, I, this was accidental initially, it, I just wrote, the way I wrote down some notes and was rewriting them later on, I was like, that kind of rhymes, and so then I then I made it intentional at a certain point to kind of flow here. So I'm, I'm just going to see, you know, how my rapping skill. It's not really a rap. It's a, it's a couple of rhymes. But uh, anyway, I'm not, I don't want to set the bar too high or too low for whatever you think of that. So let's start. We'll just read the story. Acts 3, verses 1 through 11, this first account of this healing. And then we'll uh, look at it together, explore it, and apply it today. So Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. So there's three times of prayer each day, 9 a.m., noon, and three o'clock in the afternoon. This is the third and final time of prayer. All the people gather in the temple. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. As he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up stood on his feet and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. So before we get into the actual story, I had some slides that'd be really helpful. If you watch the video later, they'll be in there, I promise. It's a, it's a depiction of what the temple, uh, Herod's temple, looked like. So this is really also called the second temple. Solomon built the first temple in the Old Testament. It's been destroyed years, uh, centuries before. So King Herod re rebuilt his version of the temple. Uh, construction began in 20 B.C., 
And like anything around here, construction just seems to never end, does it? You think, oh, wow, this lane's finally open, but then guess what? The other lane on the highway is now closed for construction. That's kind of how Solomon's temple went. It took about 45 years to build this temple, from 20 B.C. to 25 A.D. This would have been the same temple that Jesus would have gone to growing up. It would have been under construction most of his life, uh, but he would have gone here. The miracles, we'll talk about one today that he performed around the temple, this exact temple, this exact location. Unfortunately, this thing that took 45 years to build wasn't even fully constructed for 50 years before the Romans destroyed it. I mean, how sad is that? Uh, Part of their clampdown on Christianity was to destroy their temple, and so it was destroyed in 70 AD. There's two gates. It talks about this happened at a gate. There's a large entry gate that's typically called the beautiful gate. But about halfway into the complex here of the temple, which is an open air, sometimes you think of the temple as a building with a roof. There's a small building in the back with a roof, the holy place. But most of this area is just open air uh, building with no roof on it. There's like uh, columned walls around the perimeter. There's different parts and different sections of it. So uh, there's a gate at the entrance of the whole compound. Then there's a gate, a smaller gate at about the midpoint. Scholars have a debate on which one it is. And then at the end, you read at the end of the miracle, they're at Solomon's colonnade or it's called Solomon's porch. Some would say it's any one of the walls surrounding the outside of a temple. There's also this belief that it's specifically at the time, right outside the main gate on each side, two kind of covered porch areas that may have been actually Solomon's colonnade. So I think the entry, uh, the entry gate for the temple is most likely where this took place, this healing took place. And it would make sense because, you know, there's, there's one rule about real estate, right? Location, location, location. So this lame man has found some prime real estate for begging. Because the people are entering to worship. They're entering to give thanks for all they have and all God does. And so he's parked himself right there as they're coming in. You know, he's gonna, I'm going to get some sap who's really feeling spiritual to give me some extra coin today. You know? So he's there, but his entire life is totally dependent upon the generosity of other people. He's not going to survive unless people give money to him. And so that's where he happens to be, and it it happens in public. Again, the public time of prayer in the afternoon, people are flooding in, they're streaming in. When this happens, it disrupts the entire thing, as we'll get to at the end and in following weeks. But this is what happens here. Lots of people uh, at the third prayer of the day. So how I want to approach this is today we're going to look at two questions from this story. Two questions from this story. Now, neither question is actually asked in the story. But both questions are answered in the story. It'll make sense as we get going. Two questions, and then we'll spend most of our time on the two questions, but then we'll finish a few minutes on two points of application, two observations that we can then apply to see if we can be used maybe in a similar way to Peter and John here in Acts 3. Okay, So two questions that we'll ask about the story and about ourselves, and then we'll apply it at the end. Here's the first question that we see, again, not asked, but answered in Acts 3. The first question is this, what do you need? It's the first question we see here. Now, for the lame man, this might seem like a very obvious question. What, do you, what does he need? Well, he, he's telling you what he needs. He needs money. He, he, needs, he needs alms. He's begging for someone to help him just to survive. That's what he needs. And so it says that this man was born lame. 
We know later in Acts 4, after this healing happens, it says this, Acts 4, 21 and 22 tells us, everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who'd been lame for more than 40 years. So if it's been since birth, he's at least 40 years old, and this is the only existence he's known. Cannot do anything for my, can, can do very little for myself depend totally on the generosity and charity of others just to barely survive as a beggar on the street. This is all that he knows. So it'd be silly, really, to ask him, what do you need? We, we know what he needs. You can look at him and, and find out what he needs. It would be almost insulting to ask, what do you need? But Jesus has two occasions in his life and ministry that are very similar to this one. It'd be ridiculous to ask the people, what do they need? But that's exactly what he asks them. Let's look at them very quickly. So there's, uh, there's a story in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus and his disciples are walking through the town of Jericho. And as they're walking, as Jesus, you know, it happens, being a celebrity, being well-known, being a miracle worker, word's going to spread quickly that he's in town. So word spreads quickly, Jesus is coming down the street of Jericho. So a blind beggar named Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is nearby. And so what he does is when he senses the crowd coming, he knows Jesus is there, he calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Calls it out. And the, he keeps calling out and calling out and calling out, and the crowd's getting annoyed with him. Like, hey, Bart, shut up. Leave him alone. He doesn't have time for you. He's walking through. Leave the guy alone. But Jesus does something interesting. He stops, and he says, have him come over here. So here's what happens. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 50. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Hear this question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Jesus asked this blind man the same question. What do you need? And the, the answer that he gives is interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, I need money, I'm a beggar, I'm poor. I need. He says, I need to be able to see. I need a miracle. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Because who's going to just ask for that? It would be, make more sense if he says, well, could you, you know, you have an extra 10 in, in your pocket? Can you, you know, fund my ministry from your ministry? You know, can you help a brother out? But his faith is so great. His belief in Jesus is so great that he just asks for the thing that you couldn't ask for. I need to see. And he's healed. It's, it's a miracle in his life. But it started, right, with this strange question from Jesus, what do you need? There's a second account in the life of Jesus that's even more closely connected to this one in Acts 3. So outside of the temple, the same temple in Acts 3, Jesus is there. And there's this portion, it's called the Pool of Bethesda. And it's where all of these sick and infirm people would, would sit around. The reason that they're around this pool was there's sort of this urban legend that every once in a while an angel would come down and stir the water of this pool. And if you happen to see the water stirring and you're the first person to get into the pool, you'll be healed of whatever disease you have. So there are all this, basically this little colony of sick people, some that are uh, drastically ill, like this man here. It says he's been lame for 38 years. So he's here year after year, decade after decade, and he can't get himself into the pool when it's stirred. He, he finds, I'm so close to a miracle, I'm so close to healing, I'm right there, like the, he might be right on the edge, but he can't move himself, he's lame, and so someone's going to rush in before he can get in and get their healing, but he's still left in his condition for 38 years. 
John records the story that Jesus saw him. Here's John 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? That's a different delivery, but it's the same question. What do you need? What the man needed was a friend to help him get in the pool, right? That's this man's mindset. I need someone who will sit with me, stay with me, just basically live with me by this pool and watch the water nonstop. I need someone who then can see the water and just throw me in the deep end and I'll be, I'll be healed. That's what I need, Jesus. But Jesus says, I know that's what you think you need, but I'll do one better. And he heals the man on the spot outside the temple by this pool. So we see here that, here, you ready for the first rhyme? I promised you rhymes. You ready for the first one? Both the man in Acts 3 and this, especially this lame man in John 5, but all these stories have the same thing in common. They, he needed more than he thought, and that's exactly what he got. That's the best, that's the best I can do, guys, okay? <laughs> he needed more than he thought, and that's exactly what he got. So they thought, I just need money to survive. I need a friend to get, to get me to my miracle. Uh, but Bartimaeus is the only one who actually saw his greatest need. And, but all three got more than they bargained for, more than they were expecting. They were all miraculously healed. What do you need? We're asked this question all the time. It's called advertising. What do you need? You need a brand new car, right? You need that brand new gadget to make your life easier. You need that new kitchen utensil. You know, you need that new knife. You need that brand new weight loss drug that's going to magically make you lose 40 pounds overnight, right? You need this thing to enhance your life. We're, we're bombarded with this question all the time, what do you need? And honestly, we're pretty bad about accurately answering that question because we give in to the ads all the time. How much junk do you have sitting around because you thought you needed that thing? I'm guilty, so I'm not pointing fingers, all right? That you thought you needed, you thought would make your life so much better and easier, and you'd be so much happier, and yet it's just sitting there gaining dust or rust. That's a free rhyme right there for you. I didn't plan that one, but that's a bonus. We're bad at answering this question. Now, it's not bad to have things, not bad to buy things. I'm not saying, you know, you have to be a monk and sell your possessions. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. If God calls you to do that, do that. But I'm not saying as a general rule that's what we're talking about. But much of the time, we live so short-sighted. We, we live for the immediate rather than the long-term, even naturally. That's why we do impulse buys that then lead to buyer's remorse. That's why we have stuff sitting around that we don't really need. Like, like the, all three of these examples, especially the man in Acts 3 that we're focusing on, we tend to focus on the physical and temporary rather than the spiritual and eternal. And this is not a new phenomenon. We see it here in scripture. We've seen it all through history. We see it today. C.S. Lewis, in, in his classic, The Weight of Glory, here's what he says. And I wish I had it on the screen. Man, oh, it's kind of working. Oh, is it going to work? No, it's going to freeze when I don't want it to, isn't it? Anyway, here's what he says uh, about this topic of living short-sighted. He says, we are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. So like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The question is, not just what do you need, but what do you really need. What you need is happiness that stuff can't provide. What we really need is security that money can't buy. What we really need is acceptance and love that people just cannot give. 
Our real need, our deepest need, our greatest need is often more than we realize because we're so short-sighted. We're, we're so here and now focused. So the need seems great. We'll focus on that more in a minute. The need seems great. Here's the good news. Luckily, even your greatest, largest, deepest needs can all be met and found in Jesus. And that seems like a very Christian thing to say. Of course, you're going to say that. I'm just saying, I, I'm not that old, but I've lived long enough. To, that's true. There is no need that I have that Jesus cannot provide. There's no thing deep down. I can try to mask the need with these other things, this other stuff on a surface level, but deep down, it's pointing to some a greater need. And Jesus is the only one that can provide that. And if you've experienced that, that's amazing. If you haven't, today's your day. So here's what the people, the people around us need this too, and we'll get more on that here in just a minute. That's the first main question, what do you need? Here's the second question that, again, is not asked, but is answered in this story. What do you have? First question is, what do you need? Second question, what do you have? Think about the man, the lame man in Acts 3. What does he have? Next to nothing. Even look at Peter and John. What do they have? Not much. Again, look here, Acts 3, 5, and 6. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money, but Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. So when I was studying this a couple weeks ago, there was one of the commentators told about a pastor, a friend of his, who pastored a, in a college town. So he said, in the fall, our attendance would just skyrocket, but our giving pretty much stayed the same because it's all these broke college kids that are coming to church, right? So he said his friend told him uh, that one time when the college was in session, uh, in reference to this story, apparently a college student had put a note on a bacon, egg, and cheese bagel that they put in the offering. And the note said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee, is what he wrote on his note. He put a bacon, egg, and cheese bagel in the offering because that's all he had. That's what Peter and John have here. They don't have what the guy needs. The need is too great for them. They don't even have maybe a couple bucks. To, I mean, they're, they don't have anything, right? And so I'm sure that when they tell this man this, he is initially very, very discouraged. Well, that, that's what I need. Like, you're the one that stopped in front of me and said, look at us. Like, you're going to, like, write me a big check or something. Like, Publishers Clearinghouse is going to run out from the back, and, you know, you're going to be on the news. Like, what, why did you stop and give all this attention to me if you don't have what I need? But his disappointment was quickly replaced by disbelief when suddenly he can walk. He's been lame from birth. And it, notice, it says not only was he walking, he was leaping, jumping, praising God, going into the temple. Stuff he'd never done before. An experience he'd never known before is suddenly there. So his disappointment quickly went to disbelief now that he has experienced this miracle. There's three quick, pretty famous examples, so I won't spend a lot of time on them, from Scripture that ask this same question in a weird way. What do you have? Let's look at him briefly. So the first one we mentioned a few weeks ago, Moses is out in the desert tending his sheep, and he sees the burning bush, right? From this bush that is on fire but not being consumed, God speaks to him and commissions him to free his people from Egyptian slavery. Now, how many of you have ever been, maybe you feel prompted by God to do something and you just immediately go for it? Nobody else? Okay, I thought I was the only one, right? Uh, me and Moses, we're, we're alone on this. But no. So Moses fights with God on this. No, I can't, and I can't, and excuse after excuse after excuse of why he can't do what God told him to do. So we're in the same boat here, okay? 
But catch this, Exodus 4, 1 through 4. Here's, here's the last thing that Moses says, and then God's response. He's asking him, what do you have? Exodus 4, Moses protested again, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it and turned it and it turned back into the shepherd's staff in his hand. So God says, hey Moses, you're telling me all that you don't have and all that you can't do. Let me ask you a question. What do you have? Not much. He's got a wooden staff. And with that, he freed a million slaves. What do you have? The second story, a very famous story, this young teenager named David is checking in on his brothers who are in the army, and they find themselves on either side of the valley facing their arch enemy, the Philistine army. And every day their champion Goliath would go down, he would challenge their champion to one-on-one, man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat, winner-take-all. If I win, you're our slaves. If you win, we'll be your slaves. And for months, no one on the Israelite side would take the challenge until little teenage Dave shows up to check on his older brothers, and he says, I'll do it. The only problem is he's not even old enough to be in the army. He's not trained. He's not armed. He doesn't have any armor to protect him. He doesn't have any skill. He, he, can't, he cannot do this. But he, answer, he asks and answers the question for us, what do you have? Because eventually King Saul, he says, okay, it seems like you really want to do this, so I'll let you go on this kamikaze mission. I'm going to like try to avert my eyes while you get slaughtered by this giant, but go for it. But here's what happens. 1 Samuel 17, 38. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like, for he'd never worn such things. I can't go in these, David protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. So here's what he ha- David's answering for us. What do you have? He picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them into his shepherd's bag, then armed only with his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. And what does David do with what he has? He defeats one of the greatest warriors in the history of the world. With the fr- he had five stones, but he only needed one. Knocked him on the ground, knocked him out cold. David runs, takes Goliath's huge sword, cuts his head off, wins the victory. David's telling us, what do I have? Not much, but it's enough. Third story to illustrate this question is back to Jesus. Uh, Again, a famous story, but it's the same question. What do you have? Jesus has been teaching this huge crowd on a hillside all day long, thousands and thousands of people. And sometimes, like me, maybe even today, he gets a little bit long-winded, and it's time to eat. And so the disciples are concerned that these people are going to get really hungry, so they say, tell them to go into town and grab lunch. Maybe we'll take an intermission, we'll come back for the afternoon for part two. But here's what Jesus says. This is Mark, Mark 6, 37 and 38. So they say, send the people out to get food. But Jesus says, you feed them. With what, they asked, we have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Here's what Jesus says. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have how much? Five loaves of bread and two fish. And what does Jesus do with this kid's Lunchable? (laughs) He feeds thousands and thousands 
of people. 5,000 men plus women and children. We're talking 20, 25,000 people easy with five loaves of bread and two fish. The Lunchable, okay? Plus 12 to-go boxes left over, one for each disciple who were the servers that day. Didn't have time to eat because they're serving 20,000 people their lunch. So what do you have is the question. The answer every single time is not much, maybe not enough, but with God involved, it's more than enough. Same thing in Acts chapter 3. What do you have? They didn't have silver and gold. They didn't have what the man needed. And they, didn't, they weren't able to heal this man either. It wasn't through their power that it happened. It was through the power of the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit that healed this man. Let me ask you the same question to apply. What do you have? This is what I would call a missional challenge. If we're called to be our own missionaries in our own world, making our own difference where we live, where we work, who we are around, what do you have? Because again, we've already established that the real deep pressing needs of the people around us are enormous. They are too much. I can't meet everyone's need, especially their deepest, greatest need. But what do you have? I'll tell you what you have. You have a little bit of time, maybe to give a neighbor at random that needs it. You might have life experience or wise advice that could really impact someone's life. You might just have encouragement for someone that's having a really rough time. You have that. It's not much, but if you have it, what are you going to do with it? You might have a connection. So you might talk to somebody and they're looking for a job and you know someone that's hiring that you can just make that straight connection. They don't have to get involved in filling this thing out. They can just go straight to the source. Maybe you have that connection. It's not much, but if God's involved, it can be more than enough. Maybe you have a skill to assist a neighbor on a little project they're doing and you have the time to give to them. Again, I'm not talking about life-changing things that you have. We don't have the capability to meet these huge needs of the people around us, but we, what little we have, God can use to meet needs. What do you have? So here's the, the third. Did I already do the second rhyme of the day? I forgot. I lost track. I have it written down as the third rhyme of the day. If I've skipped one, shame on me. But here's the next, huh? Did I skip one? I'm going to find it. Sorry. Watch me find it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Um, oh, okay. Sorry. It was way up. At the, way up. Here, write it down. Here we go. It's, these go together, so it's fine. Here's the second rhyme, then I'll get to the third one. Second rhyme of the day. They had less than he thought he needed, but what they had exceeded. I'll say it again. They had less than he thought he needed, but what they had exceeded. And then here's the third one. The last one, we got a, a little bit more to go on ap applying, but here's the third rhyme of the day, then I'm going to retire forever as a poet, okay? This, that applies to the story. This one applies to us, to you. What you have may seem less than the need, but with God's help, you will succeed. Sam, I am. That, not that last part. That's for Dave. What you have may seem less than the need, but with God's help, you will succeed. Again, what do you have? Well, I don't have much. That's fine. I don't have enough. That's fine. The moral of the story is not really how much do you have, but will you give what you have to God so he can use it? That's the point of the story. Because we don't have enough. It's, it's never going to measure up, but God's power is limitless. His ability is unparalleled. All that he needs is what you have, and he can do great things with that. Let's close for just a few more minutes with a couple of observations to help really dig in the application, how we can live this out. Really what we're looking at is how were Peter and John able to answer these questions for this man? And if we really want to make a difference, how can we do the same? 
There's two things that they did here at the end of this story, in this story that I want to focus on just for a few minutes as we begin to close. The first thing that they did was they got involved. They got involved. Acts 3, 4, and 5. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. Really what this story is, is it's a story of a broken person in a beautiful place. This is a story of a broken person in a beautiful place. I mean, the gates that are there, they're covered in gold, they're huge, they're massive, they're heavy, they're ornate. I mean, it's the entrance to the, the temple of God, and yet sitting at the foot of this beautiful place is a broken person. One commentator describes it like this, this man is not simply broke, he's broken. He's physically crippled, he's humiliated, he's hopeless. And most people, even if they have the means to help him, probably just pass him by. Oh, that's Frank. He's, the, he's here three times a day. He's here every day. I can't give money to him every time I pass by. So sometimes they'll do the, you know, I don't see you, I don't see you. Or they'll pretend they're on their cell phones. They don't feel obligated to, you know, stop and buy Girl Scout cookies in front of the store. Guilty as charged. Sorry if you're a Girl Scout. I've done that to you probably a few times. But Peter and John got involved. They got involved in this man's life, in his situation. They, it says they looked at him intently. They focused their attention, their time on him, and then that's how they were able to see his real need. Everybody else saw his superficial need. They saw his spiritual need. They saw his real need. They saw the supernatural need that he had, and that's how they were able to meet that need through the power of the name of Jesus. We're surrounded, I would submit, by broken people in beautiful places all the time. You know people that live in really nice neighborhoods in the right zip code, and they are broken. The house doesn't fix their real problem. You know people that have their dream job, but they're constantly overwhelmed. You know people that live the perfect life on social media, but they are empty and lost. We are surrounded by broken people in beautiful places. May we fix our attention on them like Peter and John did to see their real need and find out how God may use us to reach them. And we're called as a church to do that. That's our job, is to find those needs and try to meet as many of them as we can to get involved. There's two, it's going to sound similar, uh, but there's two phrases I want to mention quickly to illustrate this point. The first one is church in action or church in action. One of them has a space between the in and the action. That's what we want. We want to be a church in action, not a church of inaction. There's a famous story of St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. He had, he had uh, you know, a meeting with the Pope at the time, and he's looking at how ornate everything is. Everything's in gold. I mean, everything is like crazy expensive and fancy. The coffers are full of money. The church is doing just fine. And the Pope comments on this in this meeting. He said, again, going back to this story, he says, Look, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. But St. Thomas Aquinas says, Yes. But the church can also no longer say, get up and walk. There's a difference between the church in action and a church of inaction. Okay? There, there's a difference there. And so if I make my faith about me, if we make church about us, we go from a church that is active to a church of inaction. And that leads to a church that is ineffective. But Peter and John got involved. 
All they were doing was following the example of Jesus. Remember in, in Luke 19, again, Jesus walking through town. There's a man named Zacchaeus who is a tax collector, so he is lonely. He's rich, right? Very wealthy, but he's lonely. He's hated. He, he, he's ostracized from polite society unless you're with the Romans. And, but he wants to get a view of Jesus. So he, what does he do? He climbs up into the tree, try to get a good seat in the house to, walk, to watch Jesus walk by. But Jesus does the same thing that Peter and John do in Acts 3. Luke 19, 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. He got involved. Jesus got involved. Peter and John got involved. They saw him and saw his need and were able by the power of the Spirit to meet that need. Then even later in verse 7, it's Peter actively takes the man by the hand and helps him up. Now what you notice, if you read verse 7 again, when was the lame man actually, according to Luke, Dr. Luke, when was the man healed officially? When Peter took him by the hand and helped him up. And that, after he picked him up, then his ankles and his feet were instantly healed. So it wasn't even necessarily when Peter said, get up and walk, it was when he got involved. Now, I think the power of Jesus healed the man, but the way that Luke words this is just so interesting to me, that it's when they got involved. Picking him up by the hand is when his legs were strengthened. So he was probably healed at, in the name of Jesus, but then a guy who's never, you ever, can you imagine if you'd never walked before and you're 40-something years old and you try to get up and walk? You're going to look like a baby horse. You're going to be flopping around. You're going to be flailing around. It's not going to be pretty, but he doesn't. He gets up and he runs, he jumps, he leaps, you know. So he's healed in the name of Jesus, and then he's strengthened as Peter helps him up. They got involved. If we want to see lives change, we have to get involved. So that means we have to get in the game and get going. Here's the second thing, and we're, we're almost done here. The second thing that happened that was sort of an effect of this is that they didn't just get involved, but then they, they ruffled feathers. They ruffled feathers. We'll look at the very end of this story again one more time. Acts 3, 9 through 11. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. So they drew a crowd here, but as we'll see in the coming weeks, it was sort of a mixed bag of the crowd. Some were astonished and amazed, but the religious leaders, the priests, are not happy. They're not excited. They are, in fact, offended about what's just happened because this is, a, this is the temple of God. You've got to be, be quiet. You've got to be holy in this place. Another way to say that, the priests were upset because we don't do that kind of thing around here. God would not work in that way. We would know we're the, we're the priests. We're in charge. We set the rules. God would never work that way. He would never go out of our parameters of how we understand what God would do. That's, that's why they're not happy. And as we'll get to in a few weeks, it gets really dicey for Peter and John here later on in Acts 3 and 4. And that's just like Jesus as well. That's why he was killed. He was unusual. He was unorthodox. He didn't always color inside the lines according to how the religious elites saw him. They ruffled some feathers. One more story. There was a, a famous pastor and revivalist, D.L. Moody, uh, from Chicago in the late 19th century. And he, he was at sometimes a bit unorthodox compared to the, his day and time. So he had a critic famously call him out for some of his methods and his services. And here's his response. Check this out. He says this, It is clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raised some good points. 
frankly, I sometimes don't like the way of doing evangelism either. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Burn. <laughs> Sick. Burn. The more you're open to God using you, the more you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the more you're going to get involved with people. And that's good. That's what we're called to do. That's what the people need. But the more you get involved and the more sensitive you are to God using you in maybe unique ways or different ways, the more feathers you may ruffle. And we're going to have to be okay with that. That, you know, this stuffy, overtight religious person who doesn't do anything but tell other people how to do things their way of not doing stuff. Like, I'm okay. Like, I'll pluck all the feathers out, and then they won't have to worry about being ruffled anymore. That's, I'm fine with that, you know? Um, so the more you get involved, the more feathers you're going to ruffle, but don't stop doing what God has called you to do. Because here's the actual hope, not that we pluck the feathers of the uptight religious people who look down on what we're doing or how we're doing it, but the hope is that the results that they see in what God's calling us to do would get them on board. Make an enemy a teammate. Make a critic someone who's going to stand by us and support what we're doing. That's the real hope here. So getting involved may be messy, may be scary, but it's the way of Jesus. It's the only way we're going to affect change. So again, two questions to sum up. What is the need? The need is always bigger than we realize it is. What do you have? What you have is always less than you think you need to meet that need. But let's get involved. Let's get messy. Let's ruffle some feathers if we have to because that's the only way to affect change. It's the only way to see God do what he wants to do. As we follow this pattern, uh, we will see this new thing become our new thing in our lives as well. Let's pray. God, we know that there are great needs all around us. We know that we have great needs. The needs that we have are often much deeper and greater than we even realize. And certainly the needs that are around us are greater than we can manage to help. Like, what difference can I make? What can I do? I, I don't have enough uh, talent. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough money. I can't really meet the needs and make a difference. But may we remember it's not how much we have, but it's if we give you what we have and let you do your work. So my prayer today is that we'd simply be willing and available to get involved in others' lives, to really get our hands dirty in others' lives and see you do your work. Even if at times it's uncomfortable, even if it stretches us, even if it does make some people mad or uptight or upset, may we just continue to be sensitive to what you're doing to what you want to do, to how you want to use us specifically in the lives of those around us. Help us to not limit you in any way by our excuses, by our lack, but maybe just say, okay, God, whatever I have is yours for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom, and for those that are around me. May we be like Peter and John. May we be like Jesus who just gives what we have not what we think someone needs, not what they tell us they need, but may we, I, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. May we be open to what you want to do and open to getting involved in the lives of others to make real differences in their lives. Thank you for this power, this authority, this ability, this anointing to do that, and I pray that it would start even today and flow through this holy week as we anticipate coming back together for Easter next Sunday, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.